Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? The Spider by Basil Copper. Monsieur Pinet arrived at the small country hotel just as dusk was falling on a wet October day. All about him was the melancholy of autumn, and the headlights of his car stenciled a pallid path across the glaucous surface of the soaking, leaf-scattered road. Monsieur Pinet was feeling pleased with himself. A representative of a large firm of Paris textile manufacturers, he had previously travelled the flat, monotonous areas of northern France, and had felt his mind becoming as rigid and unyielding as the poplar-lined roads he had daily traversed. But now he had been given another district, from Lyon in the south to the Ile-de-France, with an increase in salary as well, and he greatly appreciated the change. The beauty of his new surroundings, moreover, the different atmosphere of a novel routine, had released all his pent-up drive. His latest had been a very successful tour indeed, and his wallet bulged with the notes and banker's orders of clients. At present, he was about 50 miles south of Paris, and had decided that he was too tired to push on to his home in the suburb of Courbevoie. He had already driven all the way from Auxerre, and hadn't started until the afternoon, but he had made good time nevertheless. His bags of samples and the long bolts of cloth in the back of his small estate wagon shifted from side to side as he turned onto the bad surface of the second-class road through the forest. He was feeling more than usually tired, and the traffic in the Paris direction had been heavier than normal for the time of year. He had reached the outskirts of a small village that was unfamiliar to him, and had then spotted the lights of a fair-sized auberge set back from the road amid clean-smelling pine trees. The chairs and tables of summer were now stacked under canvas between the box hedges, but there came a welcome glow of light from the hallway, and as he ran his car in under the heavy shadow of the trees, he could see a zinc-covered bar and a thousand reflections from bottles that looked as though they contained the most warming liquids. There were no other vehicles parked in front of the inn, but that didn't worry Monsieur Pinet. He had no particular desire for company. Uppermost in his mind was the thought of a half-bottle of wine to chase away the dank chill of autumn, a good dinner, and eight hours' refreshing sleep before pushing on to Paris in the morning. He parked his car, securely locked it, and a few moments later found himself in a delightful-looking hall containing a bar, some leather stools, and a profusion of late summer flowers. A cat lay stretched on the polished tile floor. There was no other sign of life, apart from a man dressed in city clothes who was drinking cognac. He went out a moment after Monsieur Pinier came in, muttering a sotto voce good evening, and a short time later Mr. Pinet saw a big blue Mercedes, which had evidently been parked lower down the road, go by the window. In response to the sharp, insistent bell on the zinc counter, there presently came the shuffling of slippers, and the patron appeared. He was all bonhomie and effusive welcome. Yes, of course, monsieur could have a room, and dinner if he desired. It was the end of the season, and he would not find it very gay. There was no one else dining in, but the chef could make him anything within reason. He would have his baggage fetched, if he wished. All this was very gratifying, and as Monsieur Pinier signed the register, he should have been pleased. He had brought his solitary valise in with him, and after an aperitif he began to forget the dreariness of the autumn evening and the mile after mile of sodden woods outside. He was agreeably surprised, too, 
at the sumptuous furnishings of the dining room, which could easily have seated over 200 people. The patron explained that many visitors came out from Paris to dine during the season. Monsieur Pinet felt he was being unfair, but it was the character of the landlord which spoiled what otherwise would have been a delightful sojourn. He hadn't caught the man's name, but there was something about him which put Monsieur Pinet off. He was an average-sized man, with a triangular yellow face, a bald head, and unnaturally large ears. His little eyes sparkled meanly, redolent of greed and insincerity, and his wide-slit mouth, which often parted to reveal gold teeth, was the crowning glory of an exceedingly ugly visage. To Monsieur Pinet's discomfort, this individual set out to make himself ingratiatingly helpful, and personally waited on him at dinner. Of other staff, Monsieur Pinet saw none, though there must have been people in the kitchen beyond as he frequently heard the low murmur of voices, and once a plump woman in a low-cut black frock, possibly the patron's wife, walked by in the distance, giving him a stiff nod. But first Monsieur Pinet wanted a wash, and the landlord indicated the door of the toilet. It was down a short corridor off the dining room. He had to fumble for the light switch, and he then saw to his disgust that there was a large brown spider on the floor of the cracked stone corridor. It seemed to watch him with little metallic eyes. And with a sense of bubbling horror, Monsieur Pinet felt it crack beneath his foot as he ground it with his heel. He had an innate fear of spiders, almost pathological in its intensity, and the violent physical nausea stayed with him until after dinner. As he opened the door of the toilet and switched on the light there, Monsieur Pinet could not repress a cry of panic. Faff! There were two more of the monsters here, one on the wall near his head, and the other on the floor near the toilet seat. Monsieur Pinet fancied he could almost hear the low scratch of its legs as it moved experimentally, its strange blue metallic eyes, the most curious he had ever seen. In an insect, seemed to gaze at him with reproach. As it crunched beneath his almost hysterically wielded shoe, the eyes faded as the creature died. The other fled like lightning to a spot behind a lavatory cistern, wrenching another involuntary cry from Monsieur Pinet's lips. A moment later the landlord was at his side. He seemed amused, and his small eyes were dancing. No, monsieur, he said, nothing to be alarmed about. The damp weather always brings them from the woods at this time of year. They will not harm you. They are my pets. He made a sort of clucking noise with his mouth, which Monsieur Pinet found hideously revolting, and the great brown horror behind the cistern stirred. Before Monsieur Pinet's disbelieving eyes, it scuttled onto the landlord's open palm, where he stroked it and crooned to it in a thoroughly disgusting manner. Monsieur Pinet, pale and disconcerted, excused himself and made shift by washing his hands and face at the wash basin in the corridor. Back in the dining room, he felt better was relieved to see the patron first, put the spider somewhere outside the back door. He was pleased, too, to see this strange character wash his own hands before disappearing into the kitchen. The dinner was an excellent one, and as Monsieur Pinet tipped his croutons into the soup, he felt his spirits revive. The landlord was undoubtedly a somewhat peculiar man, but he certainly knew how to produce a fine meal. Monsieur Pinet was by this time so far soothed by his surroundings 
that he invited the landlord to join him at the table for a drink after his dinner was over. Contrary to his expectations, the landlord seemed to draw more out of him than the information he gained in return. In answer to Monsieur Pinet's point-back question as to whether he had been at the inn long, the patron replied, No, not long. We move around quite a bit, my wife and I. Monsieur Pinet didn't pursue the subject. He had decided to pay for his meal before going to bed and settle for his accommodation in the morning. He was a methodically-minded man, and though it all came to the same thing in the end, he preferred to do it this way. He had stepped up to the desk in a corner of the dining room, and the landlord's eyes glistened and narrowed in an unpleasant manner as he spotted the huge bundle of notes in Monsieur Pinet's wallet. The latter realised this was a mistake, and somewhat awkwardly tried to cover them over with a batch of letters he carried. But this only served to draw more attention by its obvious clumsiness. The landlord stared at him unblinkingly as he said, quite without emphasis, You've had a successful season, monsieur. It was a statement of a question, and Monsieur Pinet managed to turn the conversation quickly to the subject of his room. A few moments later, he said good night and carried his own bag up to the chamber, indicated on the first floor. The well-carpeted corridor had bowls of flowers on tables at intervals, and bright lights were burning. There was an uneasy moment, however, as Monsieur Pinet put his key in the lock of number 12. All the lights in the corridor suddenly went out, evidently controlled from downstairs, and for a long minute Monsieur Pinet was in total darkness. A faint scratching noise away to his left brought sweat to his forehead, but a moment later he was inside his room and light flooded from the ceiling fixture. He locked the door and stood against it for a few seconds, taking in the contents of the room. It was a prettily conceived chamber, and any other time Monsieur Pinet would have been taken with its heavily contrived charm, but tonight, with his nerves curiously shaken, he was in no mood for atmosphere. He merely undressed as quickly as he could, turned up his bed, got a novel from his valise and noisily cleaned his teeth in the basin in the corner. The mirror reflected back an image that was noticeably pale. Before getting into bed he heard the faint noise of footsteps outside, and looking through the window was disconcerted to see the figure of the landlord silhouetted against the light from an open door, furtively studying his car. A moment later... He moved off, and Monsieur Pinet had a door slammed somewhere below him. He got into bed. The novel was a bad one, and Monsieur Pinet was greatly tired, but somehow he didn't want to sleep. He kept his bedside lamp burning, but despite this, eventually drifted off into a doze. Sometime later, he was awakened by the noise of a car driving away from the inn. Even as he became fully conscious, he heard the faint sounds of its engine die with a hum in distance as the trees enveloped it. For some reason, Monsieur Pinet's mind became agitated at this, and he felt a great desire to look out the window to see if his car was still in front of the hotel. Before he could move, however, he heard a faint scratching noise. His nerves strained as they were. He turned his head with infinite slowness in an effort to locate the sound. Eventually, a quick glance at his watch showed him that it was after 2 a.m. He narrowed down the source of the sound as coming from the triangular area formed by the corner of the ceiling farthest from him. It was in the gloomiest part of the chamber, 
the light from the reading lamp extended only a yard or two. To switch on the main light, Monsieur Pinet would have to cross over to the door, and he was loath to do this, particularly in his bare feet. He compromised by turning up the bedside lamp so that the light shone towards the far corner of the room. There was something there, but it was still so wrapped in shadow that he couldn't make out what it was. He groped for his glasses on the table by the bed. To do this, he had to lower the lamp to its usual position, and while he was fumbling with this, he heard his spectacle case fall with a soft thump onto the carpet at his bedside. He looked down. The spectacles were only about two feet from him, but again, he had great reserve about stretching out his hand to the carpet. Dry-mouthed, he turned as the scratching noise came again and the cry was strangled in his throat as he saw the shadowy thing scuttle a little closer towards him across the ceiling. Even without his glasses, he did not need to be told what it was. But his senses still refused to believe. Something furry, like a tarantula, bigger than a soup plate, round, and with legs as thick as telephone cables. Its legs rustled together as it came across the ceiling with an old maidish deliberation, and a thin purring noise came from it. As it edged forward into the brightness of the lamp, Monsieur Pinet saw with sick fear that it was covered with brown fur and had an obscene parody of a mouth. He looked round desperately for a stick or any other weapon, but there was nothing. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth, denying him the shriek which would have saved him. His pyjamas streamed with perspiration, and moisture dabbled his forehead. He closed his eyes once and opened them with an effort, hoping against hope that he was in the grip of a nightmare. But the obscene, sliding thing was nearer still, and Monsieur Pinet gave up hope. He saw now that the creature had metallic blue eyes like the eyes of the insects he had crushed in the washroom, and as they glared into his own with implacable hatred, he noticed with a last shock of surprise that they were very like the landlords. The insect paused and then launched itself on a thick silken thread. A nauseous stench was in his nostrils, the great spider gave a sibilant rattle, and then it was on his mouth, covering his face and eyes with its bloated, sticky carcass. Monsieur Pinet gave shriek after shriek as consciousness mercifully expired. A most curious case, said the doctor, washing his hands in the washbasin of Monsieur Pinet's room. Heart sound as a bell. Yet yeah, he must have died instantaneously from some great shock. Never come across anything like it. There'll have to be an inquiry, of course. And the doctor, who was a matter-of-fact human being, gave a heavy sigh. The landlord's wife, who stood just inside the door of the death chamber, timidly assented. Down below in the bar, the landlord, who lived by the secret fears of his customers, smiled a curious smile. He fondled a thick bundle of notes under the counter. In the room above, a tiny brown spider, not more than an eighth of an inch across, 
scuttled nervously across the dead man's forehead. The doctor brushed it impatiently away, and it fell out of sight by the side of the bed. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of dead come? So that was the Spider by Basil Copper, not Cropper, but Copper. Now Stewie Burley on Twitter put me onto Basil Copper. He had suggested that I read a story called Janissaries of a Million. And I'd never heard of Basil, although when we read a little bit more about him, I must have come across him because I used to read a lot of the anthologies that his work was featured in. But you know what it's like with those anthologies, even modern anthologies, you read a story and you like a story, but you actually don't necessarily associate it with the writer. So The Janissaries of a Million is a longer book. I'd got uh, a collection of uh, collected macabre tales of Basil Copper. There's a two-volume two edition of all these short stories and novellas, of which there are a lot, and uh, The Janissaries is in that, but it is, it is a novella, really, so if we were to do it, we'd have to do it over a couple of episodes, which, of course, we've done with other stories, and we could do that, but I had a bit of a, a, bit of a mishap when I was recording this week's episode, because I'd planned to do Hume Nesbitt's The Island of the Hibiscus Blossom, which in fact is more a pirate story, but as I, it was pretty long, and I was enjoying it because there was Australians and Americans and Irishmen and very posh Englishmen, and I, I could do all the different accents, so that was a lot of fun. It wasn't a ghost story, a horror story, as far as I got into it. And then, uh, although Hume Nesbitt in his, in his prefaces actually... It makes the point that, that actually the native peoples of uh, Papua New Guinea were a decent lot, and he probably thought they were better off being unwesternized. So that's a fairly modern attitude. But the story has the language, the casual language of its period, and it's just really difficult. It's jarring, I think. Um, there we are. So I didn't do that. So I'd recorded a load of it. And then I thought, as I got in, I thought, oh, yeah, I can, yeah, maybe get away with this one. And yeah, okay. and then, nah, I can't, can't, can't get away with it. So I needed a short story and the spider is just that. I think it's only about 16 minutes long, but what a good story it is. So I'll tell you something about Basil Copper. He was born in London in 1924 and lived until he was 89 and he died in 2013. He lived in mainly in Kent and it looks like he went to school in Kent as well, though he may have been born in London. His first story was published in 1938 when he was a teenager. He was only 13 in the Tunbridge Senior Boys School. So Tunbridge is in Kent. And I, in this show notes, of, you know how I ramble on. We, when we were about 13, we went on a school exchange to Tunbridge in Kent. And, you know, other people go to foreign parts and go to France and Germany and places. But we went to Kent because, of course, we're from Cumberland, as it was the furthest northwest county in England to the furthest southeastern county in England. And then many years later, I was friends with uh, a guy called John who was uh, from Mepham in Kent. And he introduced me to this idea that Kentish men and men of Kent are two different people. And I remember we were talking about this one time and our boss at the time, who was rather grandly named Kit Sinjin Bird, who was very sort of patrician kind of guy. And he'd been in the colonial service, I think. I think that's right, you know. 
you know, because we were mm, 20 or so and he was probably my age now. So he'd, he'd lived that life in that, that twilight of the British Empire. Probably even wasn't twilight when he was there. So and he, he was amazed at the old county loyalties. He said the county loyalty, loyalties still persist in the fact that John was very proudly a man of Kent, I think, rather than a Kentish man. And I was a Cumberland yeoman. So there you go. Anyway, just <laughs> a bit of local colour there. Anyway, back to Basil. Basil was a very prolific writer. He was a proper writer. He sold this. This was his first story he ever sold, The Spider. And you know, for, for uh, and I think he sold it for £10 uh, and ended up in the Pan Book of Horror Stories, 1964, which was edited by August Derleth. Now, August Derleth, and I never know if he's August Derleth or August Derleth, but I'll just kind of fudge it and do a halfway house, August Derleth. Well, August, as I'm calling him, his brother was July. He um, he was a protege of Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, and Basil actually wrote a lot of stories within the Lovecraftian mythos and had a lot of stuff published like that. He was a very, very prolific writer. He wrote 58 detective novels in one series alone, plus gothic horrors, werewolf novels, journeys to the centre of the earth stories, and lots and lots of short stories. And he still found his time to found um, vintage film clubs because he was a bit of a film buff as well. He, as well as Lovecraft, he lists his influences as M.R. James and Edgar Allan Poe. And he's not massively Poean, I don't think. He's more got that, like, fantastical thing. Anyway, The Spider is a phobia story. I think it's a really neat story. It's, there's not an ounce of spare flesh on it. It's, it's a very effective story. And in that, it is a phobia story. It's very like Margatina Lasky's The Tower, which, of course, where the phobia there is vertigo. And that's a good story as well. Probably from a similar period. I mean, she may be the generation before Basil Copper. I think she probably is. Yeah. So she was sort of active in the, in, in the 50s. She'd be maybe about 10. I can't remember when she was born. But anyway, this one is um, about spiders. Now, it turns out in the story that the landlord keeps moving around, a very sinister character, and he seems to have the, the knack of picking up on his guest's secret fears and then using them to induce a heart attack. And, of course, it becomes worthwhile because lovely setup. We learn at the beginning his job's going well and his wallet's bulging, and then that pays off later on. You know, he's set up that detail. That's what I mean about it being a very well-designed story. And uh, he, I guess if he'd been frightened of... Um, I, I I have patients who, are, are, and you can laugh about it, but they're actually really frightened of them. They're frightened of baked beans. I've had that. Buttons, um, holes in the ceiling, uh, holes in any material. Actually, this is a far more common phobia than you'd think. So you know that kind of polystyrene with holes in it. They used to do ceiling tiles of it. This actually, I had a guy who was really frightened of that. Buttons, yeah, buttons, baked beans, and holes in the ceiling. But there's other ones. So God knows what he would have done if, if he'd had somebody who was frightened of baked beans. They'd probably just given him baked beans, wouldn't they? Anyway, okay. And then the other, with my sparking brain, the other story that it has a, a, a similarity with a little bit is the uh, boomerang story where there's the awful grub, which is in Papua New Guinea, which of course ties into what I was saying about the hibiscus blossom, which we're never going to read. So I, I don't know why I, should, I said that. I just kind of whetted your appetite for it. And I'm never going to read it. It's, it's a pirate story, basically. Anyway, oh. so yeah, Boomerang. So there we are. It's a good story. Another interesting point is that Basil's wife 
was a French lady and he clearly knew France very well. And they had been on holiday and he had seen this. He married her in 1960. I think the story was published in 1964. And he, this, there was a big spider in her room in this hotel in France. And that's why I wrote it up. He met her because she was a student learning English in Kent, one presumes, maybe in London. So what was he doing? I mean, if he was born in 1924 and published his first story, not, not in the Tunbridge Book of Boys, Boys, Senior Boys book, but um, it, in the Pan Horror book, he sold his first story when he was 30. So, well, what he was doing was he was running a newspaper. He was a journalist. And uh, he, uh, as I said, he wrote 58 detective novels set in L.A. This is a guy from Kent. He'd never been to L.A. So he used maps and films because, remember, he was a film buff. And that, that was his love, you know, the hard-boiled L.A. detectives. Of course, um, Raymond Chandler was originally English. I think he became a, an American citizen. And also, as Basil, as well as writing books and being a journalist, he served in the Royal Navy during the Second World War, and he took part in the D-Day landings from one of the naval craft there. So he was a bit of an interesting character, lived till he was 89. I think he's, I'm going to read more of him. I really like this story, so hope you did too. I won't even say what I'm doing next, because as we see, I get an idea. I've got an idea I want to do um, His Beautiful Hands by Oscar Cook, who did The Boomerang, because it's a very well, well-regarded well story. But there's plenty, there's still loads. I mean, even if, even if I kept a, uh, an episode a week forever, maybe not forever, but for quite a long time, we'd, we'd not run out. We've got loads and loads of uh, ghost and weird tales and stuff. Now, I'm, you'll notice I'm only doing these free ones once a fortnight now. That is once every two weeks to people who don't know what a fortnight is. Fortnight actually goes back to the old Celtic custom of counting periods in nights rather than days. So a fortnight in Welsh is Pythevnos, 15 nights. In English, fortnight, 14 nights. So there's a day missing as you cross the border. And a week is Withnos, eight Eight nights, there you go. So it's all, it's all nights. I like to put these little things in, these things you didn't know, and now you do. I'm doing Dracula for the patrons and the paid bit of Substack. Um, I'm up to, I'm, I'm just going to, after I finish this, I'm going to edit, um, I've done chapter seven, recorded it, and actually it's a pretty good chapter, that's when the Demeter comes into Whitby. It's really well written, really well written, and I, I enjoy doing that, but um, if you if you do listen to those, you realise I struggled over the, the Yorkshireman. Not that I've got a problem with the Yorkshire accent at all, but the, the, Bram Stoker has, because, you know, it may be partly Yorkshire, but he, the words he's coming out of the old fisherman's mouth are not, are not Yorkshire dialect. Anyway, there we are. Okay, so mainly doing this, doing Dracula. I'm thinking it's in uh, another podcast of sleep stories, because somebody told me that listening to this podcast put them to sleep, I thought, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, a, that's an idea. I may have mentioned this before. So that's, that's something. Um, that's it, really. Um, I think the music at the end of this is Dvoinik again. So you, I hope you enjoyed the story. There definitely will be more stories. If you fancy buying me a coffee, there's uh, Kofi, K-O-F-I forward slash Tony Walker. And there are actually free audiobooks there you can download. Don't be shy. I don't mind. You, t- you know, it says uh, pay what you want. If you don't want to pay now, Pay now, that's fine. Crack on, I don't mind. So yeah, coffee's gratefully received. I got a, a big box of coffee 
for Christmas from a daughter. Um, and it was really nice. Wittard's Coffees, there was like 12 different boxes from different, all over the, over the world. Wittard's Coffees, different kind of coffee blends. I've drunk one now though. Okay, that's it. Speak to you soon. <laughs>